0: Hello and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Kisan Patel, co-founder and CEO of M&A Science. m and Science produces a product called Deal Room, which is a platform for monitoring the entire life cycle of an M&A deal. And with that, here's my interview with Kisan. Kisan, thanks for taking the time to come on today.
1: My pleasure, Jason.
0: So Kisan Patel of M&A Science, tell us about M&A Science
1: m and Science is a company that has multiple product lines that cover education and technology for managing the M&A process, really focused around making M&A more of a collaborative, people-focused process. Excellent.
0: So basically the traditional M&A space, end of the day, we're talking about companies buying companies. And it sounds simple enough, but there is a tremendous amount of due diligence that goes on in these things. At least there should be. And a lot of information that changes hands and communication. So when you really, you know, anyone who's ever seen this or been through it or lived through it has has basically seen just how much work these things are. Uh, I mean, there's a reason why even you make an offer. Sometimes there's there's a break fee included in some of these contracts because you have to recoup the the wasted time and effort on some of this stuff so not surprised that someone basically decided to build a platform around making this easier so talk to me about the history of the company and what led to the creation of it
1: sure pretty typical founder story i spent about 10 years in MA advisor, working the lower middle market buy side sell side and uh from that experience was pretty familiar with the major pain points and going through an A deal I got actually got a lot of my inspiration, Jason, from the software industry. I was extremely intrigued by the way software engineers would utilize these project management tools to build software and thought, mm-hmm. why not for M and A? We had all these logistic issues and we didn't have any tool to centralize the process. And that's what led to starting deal room in 2012. We originally focused on the diligence management. The traditional way was using an Excel tracker to request documentation from the company you're acquiring. And then follow up with clarification questions. Next thing you know, you're trying to have a conversation on this Excel tracker over hundreds of items that you're going back and forth on, with quite a few people involved from all these different departments, all doing their diligence and understanding the company and the risk and what's involved, and also figuring out how they're going to integrate that company uh, when the time comes. Then also in conjunction with the Excel tracker is a virtual data room, which is think of a Dropbox but designed for additional security functionality, very granular permissions down to the single file, automated watermarking, an audit trail, so you can track every activity, who touched what, case something happens, you can always go back and review it. If there's a leak is a big thing. People want to make sure the confidentiality, because you're sharing sensitive information, you're sharing people's pay information, customer contracts, trade secrets, and things of that sort. Uh, We put it together into one product to have the same data security that you'd expect in a virtual data room type of product. But also in addition, added the workflows, same from the inspiration, of the project management tools, now you can run diligence a lot more efficient. As we progressed, the product evolved into managing integration and we found a huge value in having continuity between the process, doing diligence and having it go right into integration. So there isn't a big gap in integration folks are rediligencing the deal all over again once it closes. And then more recently, was adding pipeline functionality to build a product into a full lifecycle management solution. In that journey, probably about three years in, we shifted our focus from working with investment banks to corporates and realized that corporates each had a unique view of M&A. That led to this underpinning industry challenge of the industry itself being so siloed. That there was a lack of standardization and best practices. There was no real evidence to the way organizations were doing M&A, which with that, coupled with a, a good friend of mine in marketing that was um, encouraging me to start a podcast, married that idea together with, with using a podcast as a platform to interview practitioners Give them uh, learn the lessons learned from their experience, but then find the patterns. Can we identify what are proven techniques in the industry that evolved into a whole media business where we document these these um, things, put them into frameworks, publish books. And uh, one of our more notable publications is a book called Agile M and which was based on case studies with Google and Alacian how they utilize agile techniques in their M and A approach, coming from their engineering culture with great success, and identifying that as a big trending big trend in the industry. With a lot of other organizations moving from a traditional approach to something more agile.
0: Yeah, I mean it's uh, you, you mentioned taking inspiration from technology in general, right? And that's right on right on par there. And it's funny because I see agile being used in more and more non <laughs> technology related technology related industries because frankly it just bloody works really well if you execute properly. So basically going back to the the foundation of this, I mean the world before you had these platforms, right? You had I guess every company developed develop its own standardized process for doing this. So I think it was involved frequently. But I think back to some of the stuff I've seen where, you know, the lawyers quarterback some of this stuff on behalf of the companies, and you have a lot of paper checklists. And, you know, yes, you have the data room issue of like, what vendor are we going to trust to secure all this? And in most cases, you know, the drop boxes and boxes of the world don't have the level of granular security that you're talking about here, right? So talk to me about the world before this and the challenges that were that you lived through and how you solve for all of that.
1: The world before, the world before the, the problem was these data room technologies were prohibitively expensive. Mm. I remember being a practitioner, we didn't have access to them. And back in those days, they would charge you, I think about a dollar, over a dollar a page, like a dollar twenty-five per page. It made sense. The early days, if you look at how that business arrived, you used to have physical data rooms. You had the banker boxes and you had somebody to to guard the access to get to this room. You actually had to fly in to review the documents. And the service offering was for these data room providers to come to your office, scan documents, put them on a server. And that's where their their, uh, value proposition was. Well, we fast forward to today and they're still hanging on to that same business model where they charge you per page, even though everything's in the cloud. So that that's one of the things is a lot of the technologies are really outdated. Their billing practices are really outdated. And that's where the we've identified the initial opportunity. But then as we mentioned earlier, you have this whole other piece around the practices that go along with it, where it's it's a combination of both. You got to have your practices. When you look at a process of MA, it's unique of its own. You know, it's a large transaction, largest transactions in the world are MA. It's the largest magnitude of change management or organizations possibly going to go through. And when you start this deal, it starts off really simple, right? We make a handshake deal, Jason. I see great value in your organization. You know, here's an offer you can't refuse. Let's get our attorneys working on it. But then as you progress, there is you just more and more people get involved, more and more information gets exchanged, and it just gets more and more complex. And that's that's where things are really shifting to solve around that. And I, I would add one other thing is organizations, especially in this past five years, have truly realized that all the value is created after the deal is done. And if you don't set that deal up for success, you're going to create a lot of frustrations through all this change management that needs to be done. And if you get people that are frustrated, pissed off, they're going to quit and leave with a lot of value. So we're seeing this massive refocus, a finance-focused M&A process to a people-focused M&A process, where it's not just purely about modeling and building out the business case to do the, the transaction. But it's very much about how do you align the two organizations together in the early stages, more than just what outcomes you're looking to achieve, but even around each organization's respected values to better understand their culture and leadership. To know what's the way of working that the two organizations are going to approach as they pursue the more complex challenges that come after the close when the rubber meets the road and they actually have to integrate these companies.
0: Yep. and and frankly, even with that being the case, it's like you, you kind of nailed it, right? Like there's two parts of this. It's the um, getting married is one thing, living with each other is another. And especially in the M and A world, because no two corporate cultures are identical, right? And that kind of no one culture fully survives a merger. So managing that part of it, and I guess if you're doing the front end work to understand, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I guess you must be doing a lot of front end work and understanding the the dynamics of the company, how it works, and the culture within this as a means of of perpetuating its success thereafter is that is that how you're tackling it or is there a different approach i'm not considering
1: the ideal approach is to number one bring the end state to the front end what are we actually trying to achieve what's the real value that's going to be created because ultimately each organization is there to serve their customers and for us to do this acquisition what's that ultimately going to mean for the customers and how we serve them how we're going to come together to serve them better from there, having the leader that's going to be responsible for these post close activities, your integration leader, to be involved as early as possible so they can get a sense of what that's going to look like, what that journey is going to look like. And they start outlining a go-to-market and work with that CEO of the company uh, they're acquiring to get an understanding of how important their role is going to be to be able to achieve those goals. And then as they progress through the diligence phase... In parallel to doing diligence, they want to have a work stream to plan for integration. So that way you have your department leaders that are in there getting, gathering information, requesting information so they can assess risk. Nobody wants to buy a company, find a bunch of skeletons in the closet. And then sometimes those could be really expensive surprises or even blow up the the whole value of the deal that you're anticipating on, on acquiring.
0: Well, I mean that's that's a known phenomenon in the M and A world, where you know almost something called the winner's curse when you get into some of these bidding wars, right? Is that like you win like the the in general the general theory on M and A is that the value of A plus B is bigger than A plus B because you have C where you have S, which are synergies you can realize and then basically leverage that into to greater profitability. However, more often than not, you know minus the minus the premium you pay for it, and then more often than not, those synergies are not necessarily recognized. and I think you. What you kind of addressing here with all this is that it's the after they get married problem, right? Like how do we better manage that piece of it? So how much did you, you know, where did a lot of that learning come from? Because that's not the typical MA consideration, right? Is that coming from the success stories you played with? Is that the HR people coming in and playing a role in this? Like where did that entire part of this start to develop?
1: mean, a lot of interviews, learning from different practitioners in the industry, getting different perspectives across the board and really putting it together and just seeing the trends after doing this for about 5 years that we're really starting to see the shift and emphasis on the integration side. I think you had a good point around the front end of the part where you're you're doing the auctions and you're dealing with competitive process. I think there's a strong element over there as well because we've seen on this past year where it's been highly competitive. We've okay. seen these auction processes just go in a blink of an eye and I'm scratching my head trying to figure out how is the organizations we work with supposed to do proper diligence, let alone integration planning with a compressed time frame. So yeah. I, I believe if you got more time on your hands, you can put more t- consideration on those areas to have ultimately a smoother transaction. Definitely yeah, the- pro uh, doing proprietary deals where you can control those variables and be better aligned between both buyers and sellers.
0: Yeah, better to lose out on an unknown than to basically, uh, basically <laughs> put yourself in a bad position. Having won a bid that was hurried, so, but many companies have not learned. There's, there's several. You know, worst. You know, let's say there's several uh, Harvard Business School cases on on lack of due diligence. Just how badly that went. Some of those people happened to be on Shark Tank, but that's a different story altogether. All right. Yeah, so no, you're, you're right. So talk to me about the feedback. I mean, like you're getting. So you're selling this into companies into and they're guessing into consulting companies that also do this kind of work. So talk about the feedback you you got when you went to market with this. The software side or practices. Uh, For both. I mean, like, you know, the software side and the practices, like, how are they, how are they responding to what you built? And, you know, how was that? How are they, you know, was there mass adoption? Was there reticence? Is there a lot of institutional kind of uh, momentum around will help the way they used to do things?
1: You know, we've done well. I I think when we look at our journey, because we've been around for about 10 years in the early days, we struggled. We're selling to investment banks. They weren't change oriented cultures there. There's just toxic cultures in general. So it was tough to really sell into those organizations. We found a better footholding when we're working directly with corporations because they had a lot more at stake. Ultimately they had to own the results. So if we can help them produce better results, that was a big win for them. Then over the years, we mentioned earlier from going from solving for integration, sorry for, for the front end of the process, that's what increased the capability. So today. It is compelling when we work with an organization, especially when they're on Excel. If they're running an M&A process, they're on Excel. That's like music to our ears. You know, there's just a massive amount of opportunity all over the place to help create value. But when we think about practices, they gotta be change-oriented. You gotta have a culture. You can't just throw software at it and expect all the problems to get solved. People don't like (laughs) new things. You know, you can't throw software and people expect there to be easy adoption. I think what I've learned in, in the years, Jason, is you have to create a compelling reason to change. So just for the the nature of M&A, uh, sharing examples, we sign an endless amount of NDAs. So no, basically, these large corporations want you to promise not to tell anyone anything. But I'll give you an example. We worked with a large Fortune 500 company that a um, point where they knew that it's time to change. That here's this Excel approach. It's not working. And there's definitely better options. And I I knew because of the sheer size of the organization and they had about 20, 30 people involved in M&A with a core group of about seven folks that really drive their deals. It it wasn't going to be a simple task to get them to drive the change uh, across the board. Um, And what we basically did was started off by mapping out the process and identifying who the key stakeholders are. Because you go through a deal process, there's a leader in the very front end that's running around hunting the deal, doing the fun negotiation stuff. You got somebody that's uh, really quarterbacking the deal, that's going around to all these functional leaders, gathering what information they need, and then communicating it with the the company they're acquiring, consolidating that information, distributing it again, manually on Excel. And then you have the uh, another person that's spearheading integration, and they need to be well aware about the deal, prepare for it. And coordinate with, the again, the functional leaders to be able to execute all the activities that need to happen uh, in a right time and really own the results that come out of it. And what we did was just interview them, interview them objectively to understand what are the pain points and challenges that each of those unique roles have. And then what I did as an exercise is I pulled the different, the core MA team together, the, those seven practitioners in a round table and said, hey, I have all these challenges I've documented a minute. This is what I've heard from you. The only thing I want to do is just prioritize it. I just want to come up with one list in descending order of priority, the typical agile backlog, and let's, let's at least accomplish that. And that was such a good exercise for multiple reasons. One, it created the community where everybody felt their voice was heard, they're contributing to it. Two, it gives a lot of empathy or um, people can really identify with other counterparts across the, the deal that they work with or internally in different parts of the deal. And then the third was just some of the solutions were so blatantly obvious once you talk about it, that it was some big major problems that were really easy to solve once they just yeah.
0: communicated it. momentum is a powerful thing. It really, really is.
1: Once you do that, everything's downhill. The ultimate thing that we created was a compelling reason to change. Because anytime we introduce something, whether it was a new practice, whether it was a technology, we always got to go back and reference and saying, hey, well, we're doing this to solve these problems. And then you just had a team that was, more on board or with it to make some of these changes. And then ultimately, if you can get that feedback loop where saying, Hey, look, we're going to introduce changes, but if they're not working, that's fine. Let's, let's figure it out. Let's either make some iterate on it or throw it out and try something different, let's just keep the open communication and build that, that retrospective, another little agile technique into it. So we got a feedback loop and can create this ultimately shift to a culture of continuous improvement where everyone's change-oriented, they're open to trying these new things. And that, that's where you get the best results. That's where you can get a large organization that's been stagnant on their ways for years to start moving. And it takes a little time and effort, uh, but to get that that glacier moving to a, a little faster speed.
0: Yeah, you had so many interesting points in that last rant. It was like, you know, first off, Excel, the love it and hate it, Swiss Army knife of solutions for everything. It's great because you can open it up and just start going, but when your company's completely dependent upon a bunch of very brittle, It's just, there's always a better way. And then the institutional momentum issue of the first thing and the worst people to actually go to first when it comes to procuring this kind of software that may replace bodies is those people whose bodies may be replaced <laughs> because it's like, oh, but what about my job? Right. That's the first, the first thing that enters their mind. And I've seen many a technology company, which is just like, this is the first thing that happens. They go picture and like, oh, go talk to our department who's handling this. And it's like, no, I should not be talking to the department who's handling this. They have a vested interest in making sure this never happens. So
1: <laughs> I've, I've seen, I've seen that I've seen, um, an organization that I remember that had Two full-time roles that were doing such like tactical activities that can be completely automated, completely automated, just introducing a project management tool. They were literally manually project managed tracking stuff that could be completely automated. And it's not so much about replacing the roles or eliminating the roles. It's more about shifting from activity that's tactical crap to value add activities that really delivers value, the strategic stuff.
0: Well, and that's, that's truly the message, but I don't think people necessarily buy it. Right. It's the, it's the, well, no, you're going to do more high value things as opposed to just pushing paper or, or organizing communication, you are to do something of, of that's definitively a more value and, and manage the, the manage the actual process itself, but they don't always buy into that. Yeah, so they, it is what it is. It's a challenge.
1: I'm going flip on and change agents, you know, solve the people issues, stakeholder yeah. alignment, like those, those are the real problems
0: that absolutely deals off and awry. Yeah. Absolutely. So before we wrap up, there's three questions I ask everybody to kind of end on a positive note. First one is if you have one wish for something you can change in your company or in the industry as a whole, what would it be?
1: I think of the work environment. I think, you know, the communication part, I always feel like when we look at problems, 90 plus percent of the time, it's just some breakdown of communication. I think if we had better reminders and more transparency on good frameworks that really work, that work well on communication, I think that that's just something that I guess say, I, I seen it get lost in all organizations, small and large, but if that was a little bit more prominent, like, I don't know if we got to start teaching this stuff in elementary schools, but I just, I feel like if we can identify better with communication practices. That can make a big change. That can make a big impact.
0: Uh, yeah, I will agree with you there in that, you know, I feel <laughs> sometimes I feel like the the language itself is a brutal way to try to try to communicate things. It just It seems too often that the breakdowns in relate, whether they be relationships or businesses or wherever it is. They're all communication-based and understanding. And sometimes it's just part of the problem is we just don't necessarily a- equate the and the sufficient degree of time required in order to communicate properly. That resonates even as an example you brought up before on you know just getting people to adopt the software and training, spending enough time training. I-, I will never understand for the life of me why so many people contact me saying, well, I tried using this software and I can't, you know, it sucks. I can't use it. It's like, well, how long did you spend in training? And they're like, well, I just opened it up and started playing with it. It's like, no, that's not how it works, right? Like, (laughs) you need (laughs) to to
1: keep digging further and understand why they didn't put the effort. And and I I, I just I'm reminded of this pep talk I had with my kids over the weekend because it it goes back to that. You can get into this dispute or uh, opposing views and argue each other's views or, or hold your position, but the the opportunity is to understand why the other person thinks the way they do. How do they feel? Why do they feel that way? then you start getting somewhere because then you may identify, well, this person, you know, we're offering this training
0: manual and this person just doesn't read. Yes, exactly. Well, and it's just, you know, you can say they don't read, but they maybe just, we'll call them a visual learner. You could throw together a video that would be five minutes long and they would get it in a heartbeat. So yeah, so it's, it's a challenge. I mean, it's funny because you're talking about like there's a skill we don't learn enough of in school is how to sit back and and figure out what the obstacle is as opposed to just thinking the person's belligerent. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, we don't learn enough on that sort of stuff. And, and even, you know, I think if you really want to learn how to do that, you know, spend some time teaching because and be with the with the need to make sure someone educated. And sometimes you'd realize that, oh, I have to attack this problem from different angles. And sooner or later, one of these angles is going to resonate with that person. Right. So it's uh, it is. But but more often, than I also say that, too, that Unfortunately, the appification of the world has ruined us because we expect to download something just start touching and it'd be it work easy. But that's fine for very simple, single purpose, you know, functional software tools. It's not for anything that's more robust than that. So such as life. The second question has been what's been the biggest challenge in getting the company to where it is today?
1: Getting the right people in, and that's probably more of the recent challenge, the early, and it evolves, right? You go through a life cycle of a company and your challenges just come one after another and you think you get through the hardest stage. Even for us, so you think breaking through a million is like the hardest stage, but it's like, no, going through 10 million is even harder. So we're in that path right now. But, you know, early days, like validating, build a product and getting the market fit it takes a whole series of iterations and, and that stuff. But I, I think right now it's about getting the right people to really bring in the skills to keep evolving the company. And it becomes such a big emphasis on hiring because that's what allows you to get the talent in that can then optimize operations, help optimize customer experience, build a better product, and and so forth. And just realizing that's such a strong regimen around how you hire. And then also when the organization may have outgrown talent, having a discipline to let people go. And I think that the, the, the whole HR piece is, Probably one of the biggest challenges that we're coming across today, and um, it's tough because that's that's part of the muscles you have to develop. You sometimes get anxious when you want to hire. <laughs> you just have a gap, you have a need, and you want to hire the first person that you like, but they might be good enough, and you can't just hire good enough. You got to go above and beyond if you're trying to build a world class team that's going to build world class products to make uh, work with world class clients and make them happy. Uh, And then letting people go, you got to have that discipline as well, because if if you don't, you've seen that with companies, they kind of let these roles go and sometimes they go away longer than they need and they're waiting for people to resign or whatnot. But you got to have that discipline to have the tough conversations to make those changes.
0: I hear you. I mean, I in businesses I deal with and even my own. It's like you have to constantly reinvent the business as you scale, because the one that was got you off the ground is not the one that's going to get you to the next level. And then so on and so on. And as for the people problem, I mean, like the most common answer on this que- to this question is the people. And you brought up an interesting point around two interesting points around being very careful and selective around hiring, but also around letting people go. And if you I'm sure you've read the uh the Netflix slide deck on um we're a team, not a family. And that to me is is the most truly the the best piece I've ever written on, on managing people. It may sound a little callous and heartless. And I remember talking to someone's like, I talked about the need to let good people go when they don't fit, uh, because you're not doing anyone any favors, including, including them. And they're like, well, you know, you say that, but you ever had to fire? someone? I'm like, yeah, it sucks. It really, really sucks. And that's why people want to avoid it. But at the end of the day, I also think from my standpoint, what I want to be stuck in a job that I wasn't good at and didn't love, or it had grown me and live with the knowledge that ah, I'm just here until they get rid of me and yeah, not, no, not a great position to be in.
1: Right. It, so there, it, it works out. I mean, people, I, I've noticed that the vast majority of the time end up finding a role that's a better fit. I, I think as, um, as a manager executive making that pro- process smooth, like it, it is a tough change for folks. But once they go through it, it ends up being a better win for the company and for the individual. But being nice about it, being supportive through that change, you know, don't just let people go, leave them hanging, put them in a bad spot. If you can do it and still have a relationship with that person afterwards, I, I think you've, you've done it the right way.
0: Yeah. Well, I'll take, uh, you know, I won't say all of my firings have gone that well, but a couple of them have definitely stayed and (laughs) I've still had a relationship with after. So it's kind of nice. Very, I've had to do that. Uh, Last question is what excites you the most about what it is you're working on and keeps you getting, getting out of bed every morning to keep on fighting the good fight?
1: The change, making the impact in the industry. We've spent 10 years consistent, continuously developing our capabilities, solving a wide set of problems in the industry. Now, at a stage, we're really bringing these different capabilities together and being able to go to market and focus on expanding the ability to create value in a variety of these corporations. I think too, when we started this common startup thing is you're looking for low hanging fruit. You're basically trying to find a customer anywhere you can look under rocks here and there under the rug. But now we've established a nice solid foundation and have grown upscale. So we're servicing corporations. Our main focus is 1 billion plus market cap companies. And, and it gets exciting because now you're working with these household brands. The vast majority of folks are familiar with their large projects. They're definitely a lot more work, but a lot more rewarding as well when you do get to win those projects. So I, I think just continuing the growth and being able to actually make the difference in the industry where it's not just focused on, on the outcome of the revenues, but actually seeing the value you're creating in this before and after state that makes such a big difference.
0: Yeah, well, it also doesn't hurt to acquire a new business once you've had the validation of one of those larger companies. So it uh, it uh, it helps. Good, great stuff. So uh thanks for taking the time, Kishan. Very much appreciated. And uh yeah, hope you have nothing but success in the future. Thank you, Jason. So that was my interview with Keyshawn Patel of M&A Science. Hope you enjoyed that. It really was more a discussion about the dynamics of M&A more than the technology. But frankly, when you listen to it, everything we discussed that has to go into it, including the post M&A, making sure it works as a success, it touches every area of the business and can be rather daunting. So if you're in this space, take a look because frankly, I'm sure you could use the help. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care.